my name is Marie Laura and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you, Laura, for asking me to share. I've had the pleasure of um, meeting Laura, Laura through Zoom meetings and um, really, really kind person. And I'm glad that she's part of my recovery. So um, uh, let's see. So I have two years and a little over five months sober. Um, I have a sponsor and uh, we're current, we've done our first round of 12 steps and now I'm currently on tradition nine with her. Um, and uh, I go to meetings and um, participate and I have a sponsee as well and I work with her. And so I'm really grateful for that today. So um, how it was, uh, so there were good days and bad days um, in my childhood. Um, and it's basically just how I coped. Um, and so, uh, the way I was brought up, I had a dad that, um, if I was having a bad day or feeling sad or crying, or if I was angry, he would tell me to just get over it or, you know, um, you stop crying. And, uh, so I learned really quickly to just stuff my feelings. Um, and, I learned also what happens at home stays at home. We don't talk about it to other people. You can't trust other people. So I learned really quickly that, you know, I can't trust other people. Um, so I grew up with, um, you know, fears and um, not trusting people. And that was uh, stuff that I wish I hadn't grown up that way, but that's just how it was. So, um, you know, I, ha I had a pretty good childhood overall, but there were some bad days and, and things that happened that I didn't like. Um, and it was just that way. So um, <clears throat> as I got older into teenage years, um, the way I coped with things uh, when I was, especially when I was having a, a bad day um, was I would turn to music and I like to sing and dance in my room by myself. Um, and I would turn to food. So my dad was a baker and there was always pastries at home. And so I would just turn to food to comfort me. Um, and again, I wouldn't talk about my stuff and, and just sort of <clears throat> uh, stay in my head. And then um, I, in college, I started bartending. And before I started bartending, I, I would drink uh, socially, you know, on occasions at parties here and there. I would dabble in other substances here and there, but nothing um, addictive, if you will. But when I started bartending, I started um, liking that feeling. And, you know, people were buying me drinks and I was drinking and serving drinks and, um, it felt really good. I got to escape. Um, and so I, at the time I was going to college and bartending and then I lived at home still and I would isolate from my family. Um, and that's how it was. And so I finally graduated college. I stopped bartending. I got a job and I learned really quickly by trial and error that I couldn't be drunk on the job. So I had to just plan when I could drink and when I couldn't drink, but I know that I needed the drink and the other substance as well so that I could keep drinking. Um, and so, uh, so it went that way for a couple of years. Um, my grandmother passed away and I drank. My grandfather passed away and I drank. My other grandmother passed away and I drank. And I wasn't fully there to grieve them. Um, the hardest one for me was my mom's, my mom's cancer came back. She had cancer when I was in high school and it came back. And um, that was uh, a really hard time for me. 
but how I coped with it because I couldn't take the pain as I drank. Um, and even though I was there with her, I wasn't fully spiritually present, if you will. I was just in my, in my disease. Um, and so I ended up finally moving out of my parents' house um, and getting my own place and uh, doing the same thing again, just working, drinking, using, driving, drinking, going to bed. And my weeks sort of were like that. Um, in 2019, that was my, my worst, my, my rock bottom year is what I, what, how I see it. So I was driving one night, I get pulled over, I get thrown into the drunk tank because I was under the influence. Um, and that was, even that wasn't a rude awakening for me. Um, I kept drinking and I kept using. A couple months after I had a Bell's palsy, so that's when half your face is paralyzed. And, um, you know, the doctors prescribed me medication. Not that I look back at it and I think it was drug induced, but anything could have induced it. But I kept drinking with the prescription and by the grace of my higher power, um, nothing worse came of it. Um, and the Bell's palsy went away. Um, I still get headaches today from it randomly, but still get it. Um, and then a month later, I got so paranoid that my drug dealer was after me. And um, I was, uh, I, laugh, I can laugh about it now, but I was uh, put on a psychiatric hold, so 5150. And, um, you know, it was released and I just kept drinking and I kept using. And then finally, um, <clears throat> in December of 2019, um, I got laid off from my work. There was a mass layoff and I think it had to do with my performance because I was always doing the bare minimum. And I was sentenced to either I go three months in jail or I do, I um, go to a program. And so, because in the case, I tried to run away from the police. And so I said, okay, I'll take the program. Um, and so I had this master plan. I was like, great, I'm, I'm getting, I'm laid off and now I can um, just stop drinking and using and I'm going to test and I'm going to test negative. And then I'm going to tell them I don't have a problem and I can just keep drinking. Um, so I stopped drinking and using by myself. I, it was miserable. I was depressed. I was really, yeah, really depressed. I slept a lot. I isolated. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, and anyways, uh, on January 21st, I walked into AA before I actually started the program. And um, I told my attorney, I was like, look, I'm in AA. I, I don't have to do the program. And he's like, no, no, you have to do the program. And he was like, but it's the same thing. He's like, it's not the same thing. So I, so I stayed in. Uh, so I just remember that day. It was, everyone was so welcoming and kind. And, you know, I told them, oh, I'm just, mandated and you know sat there and listened to everybody and and they just loved loved me um or I felt loved I should say um and so then I you know went into this program tested negative and I was like okay see I don't have a problem and they're like that's not how it works you have to stay you have to like stay here the the term that you're supposed to be here so I kept coming back going to the program and I kept going to AA because I really liked hearing what people were saying. I, I, I related with some people and I was like, wow, they're so brave. They're actually saying that out loud, you know, and stuff that I had related with and, and stuff like that. And so what happened is since then I haven't gone, I haven't had, um, I didn't go back to drinking or using um, by the grace of God. Um, I ended up doing 
taking the suggestions because I didn't realize it, but I was in a very vulnerable state at that time. And, and I was uh, willing to just take a chance on this. And so I got my first sponsor. It didn't work. I got my second sponsor and I'm still with her today. And uh, she, uh, with her, I went through the steps. I did my homework um, and um, my life just, has been much better today. I mean, there's still good days and bad days, but now it's how do I cope with these like feelings? I, I can't turn to alcohol. I can't turn to binge eating. I can't turn to things that will hurt myself and could potentially hurt others. I can't do that anymore because now I know if I do that, it's just not good. So, um, now I can turn to my higher power. Uh, I call God, but yeah, I can turn to my higher power. I can have conversations with my higher power. I can pray. I can meditate. Um, I can come to a meeting and talk about, uh, you know, maybe something that's bothering me or like a really good experience that I had. Um, you know, I, I, I can do all these things. So there's a lot of other choices and healthier options. Um, because I did try drinking. I did, sorry, I did try to stop drinking and I did try to stop using even before the program, I would say, I'll stop drinking next week or, you know, tomorrow. And it just, it never happened. It just didn't. And so far the solution is AA. Um, my finances got better. I had, I owed a lot of money. I was in serious debt when I was in the, when I first got into the program and I've paid off all my creditors, all my debts. Um, now I have, you know, just normal bills that I have to pay, but I did this because I've learned do the next right thing. Even if I don't want to, it's the right thing to do. I had to pay all these people back and, you know, and it felt good. It felt good. And um, I'll wrap it up. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm really grateful to be here. Um, and it is a spiritual program, but the nine step promises, um, I definitely feel them coming true. So, uh, that's all I have. Thank you. Hi, David alcoholic and, uh, love you guys. And, uh, Marie Laura. Wow. You packed a lot into 10 minutes. That was, you just plungered and trash compacted that. That was amazing. That was really dense. That was like the seven, the, the fourteen layer cake of, of a ten minute chair. That was awesome. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to quite take the quantum physics approach of uh, of that for for this. I think I'm going to be a little more relaxed about it. So uh, we don't have to cram for for the test here. But really, that was a great job. That was awesome. I um, yeah, it was it was quite impressive actually. I'm glad that's that's going to be a podcast because. Uh, I'm going to want to go over some of that. That was awesome. Um, yeah, hi everyone. I'm David. I'm an alcoholic, and uh, this is a this is a great honor. It's always an honor to speak at any meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous, and especially for a group that I consider a, kind of an old home week kind of group. I remember when this group was founded, and uh, I had the honor to be one of this group's first speakers. And <laughs> strangely enough. Uh, the week I spoke, the, uh, the podcast recording equipment malfunctioned because <laughs> it was the, it was the first week, and they, we hadn't quite gotten all the all the kinks out. So, uh, just crossing fingers and knocking wood here, um, but it's cool. Uh, I, I'm really glad that this meeting got its sea legs and, and got off to a really good start. Um, it's nice to see everyone here. There's some old friends here, and there's some. Uh, 
there's some some new buddies here too and people I love so it's really great um, so some particulars uh, I, I have a I have a sponsor he knows he's my sponsor <laughs> uh, we have pretty frequent contact he's recently moved a couple of time zones away but we're uh, we're gonna we recently made the decision that we're gonna keep up with our sponsor sponsee relationship because uh, We've gotten pretty deep in it. I recently dropped the fifth step that ate Philadelphia right on his head, and uh, we invested quite a quite a long time in what we're doing. And uh, I, I want to keep moving forward with it because uh, we we uh, we've made some real progress, and I don't want to give that up. Um, I uh, I have a home group. It's the Late Show Online. It's out of Berkeley. It used to be out of Oakland. Um, it also has an in-person component. Uh, it's not a hybrid. It's actually two separate meetings, and it's absolutely awesome. I also have a second uh, home group. It's called the Daily Reprieve. It meets every Friday at 8 p.m. online, and it's an awesome men's meeting. I didn't used to like men's meetings. In fact, I was deeply suspicious of them for a very long time, but I'll get into some of that later. Uh, I am... Uh, I. Well, this year I celebrated my uh, 30th year sober. I, my sobriety date is February 20th, 1992. Since then, I have not found it necessary or even desirable to take a drink or a mind-altering substance or to take any prescribed medication beyond the uh, frequency or, uh, or amount that the doctor has prescribed it. And uh, I don't second-guess my doctors or my psychiatrists or, or therapists or whatever. Um, Although I, I act in consultation with them and I, I don't act in slavish devotion to them either. Uh, and I, I let them know that I'm in recovery and that's that. Um, uh, I don't tend to get into any fight over whether or not I'm a recovered alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. I tend to say I'm an alcoholic who has recovered from the hopeless state of mind and body. Um, I think that's, that settles it really. Um, not everybody is lucky enough to say that, but I am. Uh, when I'm in a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and occasionally I go to those, I say I'm an addict because I'm an addict of alcohol and a couple of other substances. Um, and if I'm, you know, I'm going to tell you, I did, in fact, use other substances, and I'll mention them by name when I get to that part of my story. I'm not ashamed of it. Um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a thing called the singleness of purpose, but I don't think it's wrong to talk about those things. If you are an alcoholic who was only addicted to alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous is here for you. But if you were an alcoholic who was addicted to other substances and used them and have them in your story, Alcoholics Anonymous is here for you too. So every type of alcoholic, every type of addict who use alcohol is welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're all here for you. I don't think anybody needs to feel excluded here. Um, there are other uh, uh, substances and behaviors in my in my story. I was also a compulsive overeater, and I am a compulsive overeater. When I go to OA meetings, and I do, I identify as that. I don't need to like mention everything in a whole. Identity. The the super long identification string just really turns me off. Like I'm not a garden variety or super grateful or this or that. I'm just an alcoholic. It's so annoying. Um, okay, soapbox over. Uh, I started drinking and using when I was 10 years old. 
I basically started drinking and using all on the same day. I, I started drinking and using uh, pretty much a lot of the same things I wound up drinking and using all through adulthood. Um, my, my drugs of choice were more and yours. Uh, I mean, it was, it was popular among my friends to steal our parents' prescription medications and over-the-counter diet pills and uh, anything we could uh, lift off the shelves of a local uh, convenience store and any alcohol we could convince somebody to buy or steal for us and any hash or weed we had on hand and, you know, put vodka in the bong water and uh, put hash and weed and prescription pills and diet pills and put them all together in the, in the pipe and just smoke it all and then drink the bong water because why waste the vodka? And that was, that was how we learned to use and drink. And, uh, and that, that was a pattern that continued for a very long time. And I was, I treated myself like a total garbage can because all I wanted to do was to get out of my mind. I wanted to get out of myself. And I, I didn't have any reason to do that. I mean, other people had really horrifying home life. I did not have a horrifying home life. I had really dedicated parents who had gone out of their way to bring me into their family. I was adopted. My sister was adopted. My parents were hardworking, middle-class people who did not abuse us, who did not really neglect us in any way. They were neurotic, but they were not mean. They didn't hit us or they yelled at each other, but they didn't yell at us. And I mean, we had a really nice childhood actually. Compared to some of our friends, we had an idyllic childhood. And I mean, other people drink and use, and I hear their childhood stories, and I'm like, no wonder you drank. No wonder you used. But me, I don't know what the hell happened. I, it is entirely likely that I gave my family alcoholism because my parents were teetotalers. And I, when I heard the stories of what they did in their youth, that's a totally different thing. It's, I mean, they, they were adventurous people, but but not well, when we were uh, growing up, they didn't do anything in front of us. And I, I don't know if I, I've told this before, but uh, you know, I'll say this again. If there had been labels on the babies at the adoption center, mine would have said something like, like a cigarette pack. Mine would have said, warning, adopting this baby will lead to a family history of uh, smoking, drinking, alcohol abuse, drug addiction, homosexuality, shoplifting, and masturbation. Adopt at your own risk. And I mean, it's a miracle they fucking took me home. It's a, it's a miracle I wasn't left on the shelf. And considering this, the, the pain and, and the grief I put my parents through, you know, um, fortunately, I did get to make a living amends. Yeah, but boy, oh boy. Anyway, so from 10 onward, it was off to the races. And for no real reason. I, you know, there wasn't some oppressive home life I needed to be free of, but, you know, kids are kids and uh, all my friends were kind of the same way. We just, we just needed to, we were the latchkey generation. My, both my parents worked and there wasn't this kind of hovering helicopter, you know, maybe someone's going to be a child molester, whatever. We were running the streets and nobody seemed to care. And, uh, in Long Island, New York, which is where I grew up, in the, the towns that were well-planned, they had these, uh, every 10 properties, they would have this well, this hole dug in the ground where all the groundwater could recharge. And it was huge and it was deep and it would connect to the sewer system. So there would be all these tunnels that would go under the streets. 
Uh, and so it would be that the groundwater could recharge and so the streets wouldn't flood. And so they were, they were called these sumps and they had all these tunnels that would run away. And of course, what, what do you do with an abandoned like hole in the ground that has tunnels that run away from? You know, that's where the kids would hang out and do all kinds of things like get high and set things on fire and get into fights. And of course, that uh, you know, it's a, it's a place where trees are grow and water collects. And, you know, that's where I got high and that's where we set things on fire. And whenever the cops would come or people would get mad, I would run into the tunnels and run into the streets and get away. And uh, that's that's the pattern I learned from my adult life. Break something, set something on fire and run away. And that's what I did. Uh, and all through high school, I learned, you know, you could take something to get out of your mind and go away. Uh, it, it, my drinking and using pattern became, you know, just escape. Just, And I learned, I learned early on that I was drinking and using more than everybody else. I learned that I was drinking and using for about the... the the quantity or volume of about five people. I, I learned that if there was going to be a six pack, that was mine and everybody else could have their own beer from another six pack. I learned that if there was a, there were two fifths, one of them was mine and one belonged to the rest of the crew. I, I learned that also there was no, no stopping me uh, when it came to opening a, a can, a case, a six pack, a, a bottle. I drank it to the bottom. I, I drank that shit to the bottom. I would share a dime bag. I would share a, I would share a quarter. I would share an ounce. I would, you know, I would, if there was a, a, this is dating me, but we would, you know, share bags of pills like Quaaludes or whatever. Fine. But I would, that alcohol was mine. And if I opened it, I drank it. The only thing that would stop me from drinking to the bottom is if we ran out of it or if I had to run out of the room. And I learned to run holding an open bottle with my finger, my thumb on the, on the top and me climbing a fence to get away from somebody like a cop or a ra raging parent or, you know, a school teacher or whatever. And there were consequences from the beginning. My sister had a boyfriend who had a younger brother and, you know, I, I put that kid's head through a window by accident. I didn't even like, I didn't even want to do that, but I did, you know, and uh, we, there were, there were consequences from the beginning, uh, but I, and this is true, in my town, it was kind of evenly divided between the, the Jewish people and the Irish and Italian people. And if you, if you were, my family situation was that my sister was older than me and she dated all the Irish and Italian guys. And so with me and the Jewish people, we were all related to the teachers and the lawyers and the doctors. And the Irish and Italian people were all related to the cops and the firemen and whatever. So anytime I got in trouble, it was like, oh, you're Karen's brother. Okay, so the cop would, who would pull this over or something would be, uh, would be like somebody who knew whatever was my sister's current boyfriend. And she was a very practical woman. She always dated like a mechanic or her drug dealer or the captain of the football team. So I lucked out that way. Or it was me getting in trouble and like, it was somebody who's related to the teacher or something that I just had or, or the school principal or to a lawyer. And so I, I got advantage after advantage after advantage. And I, I was very lucky that I didn't use them all up before I, I went away to college because I, I, got, I got nine lives, baby. I got nine fucking lives. It's a miracle I didn't get kicked out of high school. And, and you know, thank God my sister's dating habits just saved my ass. Because I wound up getting a scholarship to college and I, but 
And when I went off to college, I was some, I was just, man, my using pattern, my drinking pattern uh, basically was, you know, I drank myself thin, I drank myself rich, I drank myself brave, and I drank myself uh, uh, and, and straight, right? And that was, that was the thing. I did not want to be who I was. I did not want to be a person that was doing this, doing the drinking. And, and the problem was that every time I sobered up, I was still the person I was. I was still the same scared, poor, fat faggot I always was and I, I did not like myself and so and and I never changed and and when I went off to college I still had the same problem like I was trying to pull a geographic and become a different person but I was the same person and I still had the same problems so I went off to college with a, with a drug addiction and drinking problem and with also the same other problems and also hating myself I came out of college with a major in four minors one of which was East Asian studies. I remember no Japanese whatsoever, none. I mean, I did pretty well with my history and environmental science minors and whatever. I, I did okay. But I did a lot of drinking, smoked a fuck ton of weed. I used a couple of other substances a lot. And I came home with a lot of dependencies on those things too. And, you know, I did a lot of exploring in my religion minor. I explored literally every other religion except for the Christianity that is the majority religion in this country and the Judaism that I was born and raised into. So those two I knew practically nothing about. But everything else in the world, I, I learned everything I could. No practical purpose whatsoever. But I learned even more how to drink. I learned even more how to, how to smoke weed, how to snort, how to do various other drugs. Man. I came home and uh, I was mooching off my parents for the next two and a half years. And, and I felt so worthless. I felt so worthless. I had no direction. I had no clue what I was going to do. I knew that I did not want to go to law school. I knew that my education suited me for law school, but I absolutely effing hated it. I hated the idea of being in school another effing minute. I just did not want to do it. I had nearly flunked out of college one time. One semester in the middle of college, I nearly flunked out. And I had swore, myself, I had swore to myself I would never fail at anything again. So I pulled up my grades. I pulled my head out of my ass. Somehow or other, I did it. But, but when, I, when I came home from college, I said, no more. Because I knew I would fail out of grad school if I tried. Because I wasn't going to quit drinking and using so I decided uh, I was going to find some job I could easily excel at. And I found something I could easily do without much effort. And that's exactly what I did. And it was one of those jobs where, you know, you marshal the resources of a crew of people and you go do the, the thing for the good fight. It was a political job. And it was a job where I could drink every night. I drink and use every night with a crew. And I did. And I found, you know, I had a crew of like 10 people and I was literally drinking and using as much as the entire crew. And it was, it was just, I was going downhill pretty fast. And I wound up getting in a huge amount of debt, still living at home, not spending any money on rent. And I, I was drinking every night. I had no idea how much I was drinking. I'd lost track of it. I'd lost track of how, many, how much drugs I was doing. 
And uh, I knew something had to change. Back when I was 14, I had gotten pretty desperate. Um, after I put my sister's boyfriend's kid brother's head through a window, and it looked like I was about to be suspended from junior high school, because that's where it almost got me. Um, and also I'd gotten a little fat because compulsive overeaters do that when, you know, it's cookies and beer night. Um, I went to a 12 step, I went to several 12 step programs and for like 30 days, me and this, uh, this one girl, we wound up going to AA, NA and OA meetings together in our town. And for like 30 or 60 days, we went to these meetings and I remember, because there wasn't a lot of young people going to these meetings, but these, these Jewish and Italian women in these meetings would pinch our cheeks and go, hi, ah, you're so young. You're so lucky. You never have to drink or use again. It was like, and I, I was literally staring down the prospect of never drinking or smoking weed again for the next 90 fucking years. And they were, taught, they were saying that was lucky. And I was like, fuck you like what the what are you saying i could not relate and there were and there were no other young people and i just so for 30 or 60 days or whatever i stayed with whatever we were doing and then me and this girl would like go back to her house and get high and drunk and eat chocolate chip cookies after a while and we wondered why shit didn't take but you know we did it for a little while and it worked so i remembered that when I was 23 and desperate. And because uh, I had researched and I thought, you know what, maybe I have to go to rehab. Because I, I thought about it and I, I did some looking into it and I found out that rehab costs thousands of dollars. And when you don't have insurance and it's, and it's 1990, nobody has insurance for rehab. I was like, mom, dad, do you have $10,000? And they were like, no. But you, we remember when you went to those meetings and all they wanted was a dollar for the basket. We'll drive you to those meetings if you want and we'll give you a dollar for the basket. So I was like, okay. The thing is, I didn't know how addicted I really was. I just knew shit had to change because I was going nowhere. And I, what, what happened was I, I wound up detoxing in my parents' house. And I mean, I didn't know how close I was to, I didn't know I had to be teased. I didn't know what delirium tremens was. I didn't know when I had the shakes that it could kill me. And I had seizures in their house like, and they had no idea what was happening. It was, it was a terrifying couple of days. And I, I have no idea, no idea, but I got through it. And uh, well, I got through it and um, for six months, I, I stuck with it. I got sober. I started working the steps. I had a sponsor and man, things improved so much. And they improved so much that um, I, I met Mr. Wonderful and I felt great. And because I met Mr. Wonderful, who just happened to live in another state, who happened to be, you know, 10 years older than me and getting a promotion to 
become uh, the executive vice president of something and he was gonna move across the country to San Francisco. And well, I thought, wow, this is perfect. <laughs> I mean, they say, don't get involved in a relationship and make a major change in your first year. And I thought, oh, that's, that's just a suggestion. <laughs> so uh, I, I moved across the country with Mr. Wonderful and um, didn't stay with the program, didn't keep working my steps. Oh, of course, I was in the middle of my four-step at the time. So uh, there you go. And three months later, I am uh, out of that relationship. I'm out of the job, I'm out of the apartment. And man, I am 3,000 miles from home and I am cast adrift. And what do, we, what do we do when we don't know what to do? I mean, we find the lower companions we always had. And, uh, you know, I know how to find lower companions, all right. And I went on, I went on 18 months of the worst, most down and dirty, most disgusting relapse I could have imagined for myself. And, you know, new meat in San Francisco in uh, the early 90s. I mean, I, I need to explain something about that time for a lot of people who weren't there with us. I had just gone through the 80s, which was terrifying to be a gay man in the 80s because most of the country hated us. Uh, and about half of us had died. And most of the country didn't care, was very indifferent to whether or not we survived. And I, I basically believed we had a government that was indifferent to whether or not we survived. And I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of pent up rage. And I was working that out during that time period. Uh, I was working as a, a bouncer and a barback and a bartender uh, in a teenage hustler bar on the edge of the Tenderloin. But I was also getting involved in political action that was kind of uh, uh, anger management and anger displacement all rolled into one. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of groups like Queer Nation and ACT UP, but we were getting very, very highly publicized activities accomplished. And uh, But I was also involved in uh, violence in the workplace. And I was also having violence committed against me uh, by roving gangs of uh, gay bashing folks who were uh, cruising the Castro looking for trouble and drug dealers who were cruising my uh, the neighborhood of my work looking for trouble and uh, drag queen prostitutes who were getting high and drunk and looking for trouble and me out there looking for trouble and finding it all the time. I was winding up in the hospital with head wounds and facial wounds and all kinds of wounds, just all the time. I kept getting into violence all the time. And I mean, I, when I think about my lifestyle today, when I think about my, my attitude today, and I, and I turn back to the, the person I was then, I, I find it hard to, to, to balance the, the two people I am and the man I am and the man I was. I find it hard to, to balance the scales between these two men because the man I was was a really violent and broken man. 
there was the the day I got sober was about seven days after the worst Valentine's Day ever. When I was uh, I was on a date with this beautiful man, and uh, we had gotten so drunk we could not even tell really where we were. And we were kind of a prime target for people who were looking for targets. And they found us with some crowbars and uh, two by fours. And uh, and we wound up in the hospital and it was four in the morning. And the uh, thing is, it was, it was like one after the other, after the other, after the other. There were so many different times. And it could have been me instigating it or somebody else instigating it. It didn't matter. It just didn't matter. Um, I was finally done. And I mean, this just kind of highlighted the, the fact that I don't, that, that, that I don't have a need for violence in my life now is, is so, it's so, so clear. It's so, so pointedly clear. But boy, there was so much of it then. And when I came to, in the hospital, in the ER at 4 a.m. My mom was there. She had been 3,000 miles away, but because my sister had moved to, to the suburbs of San Francisco, she uh, she was visiting my sister, and somehow or other, she materialized in the ER. And as soon as I came to, there was my mom. <laughs> like, the jig is up. And it's not a case where you can like look at it and go, oh, mom, this isn't quite as bad as it looks, because it was totally as bad as it looked. And I called my therapist, who I've been lying to for the six months previous. And uh, she finally cut through all the bullshit and said, are you done? And I was done. I was finally done. So I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, about what it means to have been done, to finally, finally put up, to, to just let it go to finally stop the lies because I finally admitted that I was absolutely done, that I was finally ready to admit that I needed help because I was no longer able to, to be self-sufficient. I was no longer able to, to go it alone. I don't actually know how I, I, I came to be beaten into this state of reasonableness. But seven days of recuperating in my sister's house and having to deal with my mom just looking at me with that look on her face. I mean, she looked at me and she said, you know, you make it so hard to help you sometimes. And I, I just looked back and I started crying. I said, I, I don't mean to make it so hard. I, I, I don't know what it is. I, I think what I told her was that um, I, I don't like to admit that I'm, that I, I I need the help. I don't like to admit that I need it. I, I want to be someone who can stand on his feet is basically what I said or something like that. I had too much pride. When I went to my first meeting on the 20th, uh, there were three people who welcomed me to that first meeting. And it was a meeting full of freaks, absolutely full of freaks. And I loved it because I felt completely at home in that meeting full of freaks. If it had been a meeting full of people in suits and ties and skirts, 
I would have hated it. I would have absolutely hated it. And I probably wouldn't have shown up. I would have thought it was a, a meeting for like Mormon missionaries or something. And I would have probably felt absolutely uh, unwell. But I'm so glad that I, that I, uh, that I stayed uh, and found a welcoming there because I felt like a freak. Um, I won't spend too long on it, but uh, one of the guys who, who, uh, who welcomed me passed away very shortly thereafter, about six months. But he didn't die from a relapse. He died from a different disease, AIDS. And when he passed away, uh, he was so welcomed uh, and so uh, uh, he was so uh, missed by so many people because he'd been helping all these people. That I, I, the lesson I learned was that I wanted to be like that. I wanted, you know, when I go out, I want to go out with some gnashing of teeth or or something. I, some, I, you know, I, I wanted to be missed. I wanted to to make a mark. I wanted to have some people at least regret the fact that I was no longer there. And up until that point, I, I didn't think that that would have been true, except maybe my mom, maybe my sister. I'm not. wasn't sure my brother-in-law would have cared one way or the other. But I wanted it to, at least to, to have somebody notice, to have somebody say, well, Dave did this good thing. And so I made up my mind that that was the way I wanted to go. And the, the second person who greeted me was somebody who uh, passed away three years later and he died of a relapse. And I learned that uh, relapse can be fatal. So I decided I, uh, I was gonna burn that into my mind if I could possibly avoid a relapse, I would do it. And I would tell people that relapse can be fatal. So if you haven't relapsed yet, don't. If you're in the middle of a relapse, stop. It, tell us anything you can tell us about the nature of your relapse and, and, and we'll use every tool in, our, in our, our toolbox, every weapon in our arsenal to help you stop the relapse. And, and the third person who greeted me was somebody who, uh, who just always, always is in service. And when a catastrophe happened in his city, he's like, uh, so this thing happened, but everyone's going to worry about me and I have a service commitment. I'm going to go do that. So he's still sober today. And that's a lesson. So I, I just wanted to, to mention that because it matters. What's going on for me today is, you know, I, I nearly died in October. I mean, I, I had a I had a long, long battle with my health. I mean, I've, I'm 30 years sober. I've had lots of ups and downs, lots of them. And, you know, I, I got to spend the, the last three years of my dad's life being his primary caregiver, working with my sister and my, my new brother-in-law, who does care if I live or die, thanks. <laughs> um, and he's a, he's a good man. And that after that three years, man, I got to got to you know kiss and hug my dad every day, and I got to to be there for him on his final days. And I mean, we we came full circle. I came full circle with my mom when she passed away. I'd been one of her primary caregivers too. Uh, you know, I I got to really fully give back to my parents. I got to fully give back to my sister to to help raise my nephews. Um, I got to help teach my, my nephew history and show him things about the world that I, that I learned. And my gay nephew uh, who's older, I, I got to be a bit of a mentor for him uh, so that he didn't grow up with some of the self-loathing that I did. And uh, 
you know, when I when I do this now, when I when I look at at where I'm at now, you know, I, I I've had to to really look hard at what what I've done and and where I'm where I'm at. And this year, when I nearly died, and my sister said to me, "Look, you can't die on me. I can't I can't have you die on me. We we have to fight." And uh, I mean, that really touched me. You know, we. We've had a huge fight over the previous uh, 2016 election, and we we had a we had a three year falling out, which my sister claims she doesn't even remember. Okay, um, well if she's going to go so far as to not remember it, then then I guess I can too. And <laughs> uh, and, and I. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And um, you know, I I have a lot to, to work on with my health, and uh, and I you know I, I've got a lot to work on with uh, with a number of different things, and I, I still have yet to find a permanent or lasting love in my life. I I had it before, and I'd love it again. Um, I just, but I have things in my life that I that I that I want. I have things in my life that I that I feel. Are fulfilling. I have a lot of sponsees, and I have a responsibility to them. And I have a family that love me, and I have a responsibility to them. And I I look forward to to sit to to doing new things each day. And with that in mind, you know, I'm going to keep fighting for for my right to live. I'm going to keep fighting for my right to keep giving uh, and to to keep enriching my sobriety and to keep enriching the sobriety of the people around me. And uh, um, I hope I'm contributing to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope I'm contributing to to the people who've who've shown their love for me. I, I hope that I'm being worthy of my seat and worthy of the the time and space that it that it takes to get to know me. Um, I, I, I strive for that, and you know, if I fall short, I hope people take the time to let me know and to to show me the way forward. Um, and in return, I'll I'll do the same for you, and I'll I'll listen when when things get tough. Uh, that's my job. I mean, uh, the purpose of life is to create more life. The purpose of love is to create more love, and, and we're here to wash each other clean, you know. And I'm I'm here to help you do that, and hopefully you can help me do that too. But thank you very much for being here for me. I I, I know that uh, 40 minutes is a long time to listen to anybody, but uh, I hope I I made it worth your while. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.